Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Imagine that you're suddenly accused of a terrible crime in the distant past that you're entirely innocent of. Your family is bewildered, your friends are anxious, and your colleagues slowly but inevitably begin to take distance from you. By the time the trial comes around, your life is completely, needlessly shattered. And why? Merely because someone, somewhere, suddenly remembers something spurred on by a repressed memory therapist. Elizabeth Loftus, Distinguished Professor of Psychological Science and Law at UC Irvine, has seen this sort of thing more times than almost anyone, given her frequent participation as an expert witness in hundreds of legal proceedings. In fact, as a direct result of much of her groundbreaking research on the malleability of memory, many specific policies and procedures regarding the admissibility of eyewitness testimony have evolved substantially. As I understand it, you were motivated by mathematics at first when you, uh, when you first started your academic career, when you started undergraduate and so forth, that you were looking at, at the world of mathematics as an entry point to somewhere you wound up that was completely different. Well, oh, we're going way back then, I guess. Um, well, I, I, uh, I loved math. Um, and maybe I love math because uh, my father was a math whiz and, and he was a kind of cold, uh, unemotional person. Mm. But we could relate when he was helping me with my math homework. Um, so I got very good at math and I um, went to UCLA as an undergraduate and I was majoring in mathematics and, and then uh, I took a course in introductory psychology, and I just absolutely loved it. And so what was it that, that attracted you at first? What, what was it that piqued your interest when you took that course in introductory psychology? Well, first of all, um, what I really loved about math was algebra and geometry, right. even trigonometry. But when I got to calculus, I didn't really love calculus that much. So I was getting a little... Uh, unenthusiastic about math when I took this introductory psychology course as an elective and I just all about people and real right. things and right. and it was you know great professor and so I took more psychology and by the time I was done with college I had uh, enough credits and courses for a double major in math and psych and so that's what I did and then I ended up going into a graduate program in mathematical psychology. So what is that? What is mathematical psychology? Uh, well, or what was it? Maybe? Well, I, in mathematical psychology, sort of using mathematics to and formulas to try to describe behavior. So like economics, like these economists use maximizing utility functions and, and, and that sort of thing in order to make choices, rational choice theory, that is something like that, or is it a little bit different? Uh, well, it, it's it was a little bit different, but you you were trying to develop kind of formulas that would predict or describe behavior. Right. Um, 
But I was not enthralled with mathematical psychology in graduate school. And it was later in my graduate school days at Stanford that I started to do a project with a professor on memory and on, got interested in memory. And that's what I stuck with. I so mean, so it, was, it was from that experience. It wasn't as if as a small child you were wondering, what is memory? What is memory? It wasn't, that, oh, wasn't so no. much that at all. No, no, no. It was, no. I mean, you know, when I was in college, being a math major, I thought I, I thought I was going to end up teaching, you know, high school mathematics or right. <clears throat> something, something like that. But right. no, I didn't have a thought about memory really. So these 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 first experiments that you did as a graduate student at Stanford, they were the ones that that piqued your interest in memory and started to push you along that road or drive you along that road or what have you. Well, yeah, but it's a little more complicated than that because when I w was at Stanford doing those initial studies with my professor colleague, or he was my professor, I was the grad student, <laughs> um, and we were doing these studies that, uh, that we ultimately published together, um, they were pretty theoretical studies of memory. Um, so, so give me the name of a bird that's yellow. Uh, uh, chickadee. Okay. Is, is that yellow, actually? Well, I, I don't even know if it is, but whatever. <laughs> so then I, we'd measure how long it took you to answer that question. Right. And uh, we found that people were faster if you said, give me the name of a bird that's yellow, than they were to give you the name of a yellow bird. Yeah. If well, you, you should see how long it would take me to come up with a yellow bird. I mean, that would be hours. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> so. yeah. So, but, you know, about 250 milliseconds faster. and. Right. and you know, this was a this was an important result in terms of tell, telling you that um, how people searched. How do you do it so fast with all the millions of things we have stored there? How do you find it so fast? Right. How do you search through your long-term memory system to find that? And and that's what I was working on. And um, wrote some papers on semantic memory. It's called our memory for words and concepts and so on. Uh, but even that was a little too theoretical for me. And so, so one day I was having, this was after I got my PhD, I was having oh, lunch. Really? Yeah, so you did your PhD on the semantic memory? Uh, well, it? no, I did my PhD on yet something else. The semantic memory work was a, a side project. I okay. mean, I was working on, in fact, my PhD was on um, um, computerized mathematics instruction. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, something completely different. Oh, completely different, yeah. Something that I never pursued after I got out of graduate school. Huh. Okay. Um, while I was in graduate school doing my dissertation on semantic, uh, on um, mathematics instruction, and um, I had this side project on memory. And, and so that was the work I did for the first couple of years after I got out of grad school. And then, um, I was actually having having a lunch with a cousin of mine who was a lawyer uh, in New York where I was teaching at the time and and she said well you're an experimental psychologist have, have you what have you made any discoveries and when I told her about the, you know the yellow birds right. uh, study didn't she didn't quite do it for her it didn't it did nothing <laughs> for her and she said you know and how much did we pay for that finding and and so I thought, you know, I do want to do something that has more social relevance. And so there I was. I'm, I had an expertise in the area of memory, but a kind of long-standing interest in legal issues and, hmm. and 
Had you ever thought about going to law school? Did that, did that cross your mind uh, at some point? Well, only later, only, oh, only later did it cross my mind, but uh, there was no way I was going to take any more tests. Right. Uh, sure. So, and besides, I, I, as I would ultimately discover, if you have something, you know, valuable to contribute to the law, they'll come to you. Well, even clearly. If, you know, even <laughs> if you, you don't have a law degree, so. Right. But anyway, so so I interrupted you. So you had this meeting with uh, with your cousin. Right. She she sowed some seed of doubt in your mind as to the the importance of the social relevance of of the line of work you were doing, or or at least gave you some motivation to perhaps look a little deeper into things that were more uh, transformative socially. Is that is that a fair way to I, say it? Or, it or pretty pique, much pique is. Your yeah, and 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 got me thinking. Well, you know. Do I really care about the structure of knowledge in our long-term memories? I mean, am I working as hard as I do because I, I, I care about that topic? Right. Or am I working as hard as I do for other reasons, like to be successful in my field, to do um, work that I can publish and advance in the field? to bring students, graduate students especially, into the project so that I can make careers for them. To, um, and I, and I, you know, so I had spent some time thinking, well, what am I really interested in? What am I passionate about? And then I looked at myself and I said, well, what do you like to talk about when you're, let's say, at a party and you're not, you know, you, right, you can talk about anything you want to talk about. Right. And, I found myself talking about legal issues and huh. legal dilemmas and so on. And so it was this thought process that got me to the point of, well, how do I combine memory and legal? How about the memory of witnesses? So this was driven by a real series of introspection at this point, triggered by this, this one event, this lunch that you had about where are your passions, how can you marry your passions with your scientific research and, and orientation and training? Is Right, exactly, exactly. And so, and then around that time, um, I was talking with an, a, a professor of mine. So I thought, well, I think I'll study witnesses, you know, because witnesses have to use their memory, witnesses for, you know, crimes and accidents. And I happened to have a former professor who, who passed away recently who said, you know, he was working for the U.S. Department of Transportation. If you look at memory for accidents, we could have some, maybe some funding for you. Hmm. And I thought, okay, memory <laughs> for accidents. And uh, um, I came home, you know, to my then husband and said, I'm going to be studying memory for accidents. Oh, really? Well, what about them? I said, well, I don't know yet. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yet. But... Um, so this is with the stop sign and the yield sign? Is this, well, is this it, that kind of stuff? Yes, or? yes. But the, even before the stop sign and yield sign, there, there were studies of leading questions right. and how they affected what a witness told you. So how, what is a leading question? Uh, just, for, again, to assume, to, to, be, to give a more comprehensive definition, because I always have to assume that people haven't, who are looking at this, they haven't uh, studied anything you've done or aren't necessarily familiar with your work. So we can imagine what a leading question is, but how would you define it? Well, a leading question is, is, a, is a question that kind of suggests an answer or biases you towards an answer. Uh, if I ask you, uh, did you, did you see the broken headlight versus did you see a broken headlight? The use of that definite article suggests that a, he a broken headlight existed and now asks you whether you happen to see it. 
Right. So it's more leading than the neutral question, did you see a broken headlight, which doesn't carry an assumption about the existence or non-existence of, of the headlights. So, and these leading questions can prejudice results, presumably. They can, they can bias results, or yes. one, one can imagine. How fast were the cars going when they smashed into each other? We found people gave higher estimates of speed than if you ask a more neutral question, like how fast were the cars going when they hit each other? Hmm. So that's another example where the word smashed kind of suggests a more intense accident, cars going at a faster speed and so on. Right. Um, so I demonstrated the, the power of just changing a word or two in a question to affect what people reported about their past experience. But then I began to see these questions as really pieces of misinformation that could contaminate or distort the witness's memory. And, uh, and so my body of work then began to be about how post-event suggestion could contaminate memory. And we ultimately then called this phenomenon the misinformation effect. And had you any suspicions of this when you started? Were, were you, did, when you, uh, you, you pointed out very clearly that you weren't sure what you were gonna do. There was funding, oh, let's, let's do this, let's investigate some things. Did you start approaching these experiments with this idea that memory is malleable and, and is one of these things which is less precise than we might imagine? Or did these findings really surprise you personally? Um, were you shocked by the, the difference in levels of report between smashed and hit and all the rest of these sorts of things? Was this a bit of a surprise for you? Uh, it's too long ago for me to remember particularly. I, I, I don't remember if I, if I was exactly surprised. Um, uh, but I, I was enjoying this work uh, a right. lot. Um, and. And I could speak to lots of people about it, and they'd be fascinated. And right. um, you know, the, and one other thing that happened that I think was very quite significant in terms of sort of shaping the direction I would then go is, uh, well, I moved from New York to Washington State to join the faculty at the University of Washington, right. and. Uh, I'd been, at, by that time, spending a couple of years doing uh, these witness studies, but they were all laboratory studies. I'd never really seen real witnesses. Really? Yeah, at this point. No, just, just people to whom I'd shown films or staged events, uh, but real witnesses. So uh, I happen to know... Um, one of the chief trial attorneys in the public defender's office in Seattle, Washington. And so I said to him, you know, I would love to sort of consult on a case of yours, I mean, for free, uh, and just so I can, and whatever I can contribute to the case, knowing a lot, uh, something about witnesses and right. witness testimony and so on, uh, if I could kind of be a fly on the wall and observe what's happening and and he was okay with that? Uh, and, yeah, and consult with you on a real case, see real witnesses. And I worked with him on a case involving a woman who was accused of attempted murder, and there were memory issues in the case. Uh, and that woman ended up being acquitted of, mur of the murder charge. Uh, so I took all this information, the case I'd worked on, 
the acquittal, the science that was relevant to it. I wrote an article for Psychology Today magazine, which at, at that point may have had a circulation of a million, lots of lawyers and members of the legal profession read it. And after that article, I got all kinds of calls from people, you know, will you work on my case? Will you lecture to my group of lawyers about this science and what it implies for the legal system? And so that really did launch my relationship with the legal profession. Uh, and it, it was kind of a two-way street. I would contribute the science, and but I would get a lot of research ideas from sure. the the cases that I began to work on. So, what sort of things would you would you tell them when you would lecture to them, the lawyers and and people in the in uh, in the legal world when you would give talks? What sort of things would you would you be saying at that time? Well, I, I, I suppose my message for a long time has been about the malleable nature of memory. I mean, I've learned a lot more, you know, in the decades since about right. the malleable nature of memory, and I, and I, you know, but basically that's what I was learning even in the 1970s that right. the power of questions to influence not only the answer but to actually change the memory of people and, um, you know, the implications of this for for lawyers and the. Then we began to learn that you know jurors didn't people in general jurors in particular didn't particularly know this stuff right. or know about the many other factors that affect the accuracy of eyewitness testimony. Uh, so it, were these jurors making important decisions based on inaccurate uh, knowledge, misconceptions about the workings of memory and how could we educate them? Right. And, and so I you know, began with defense attorneys to try to get judges to introduce uh, expert testimony into court cases to educate right. uh, the juries. And, and that was you know, pretty controversial in the beginning. A lot of judges said, uh, you know. What do we um, need this for? Is this yeah, yeah, well, yeah. They, I mean, they had two uh, th reasons that they uttered for why they weren't going to allow this form of education, this expert testimony. Um, they would they would either say it invades the province of the jury, that it, that it's up to the jury to decide whether this witness was in a position to see and hear what's being claimed. Mm -hmm. We don't need an expert to do the jury's job here. Mm -hmm. uh, or they would say it, it was all within the common knowledge of the average juror and therefore not a proper subject matter for expert testimony. So but everybody knows the claim is that everyone already knows about the malleability of memory. That's, right, that's and everybody already knows about cross-racial identification problems, the special problems that occur when one member of one race tries to identify a, a member of a different race. You know, everybody already knows about the effects of stress on memory or you know, the effects of alcohol on memory or the effects of anything on memory. But wow. we would ultimately prove that not everybody knows this, sure. that there are plenty of misconceptions. And uh, so our hope was that we could uh, educate these jurors and that they would make better decisions. And presumably that did start happening. Oh, it did. Yeah, it did. But it took a, it took a long time because uh, when a judge says, I'm not going to allow this expert testimony, and then the defendant is convicted, because eyewitness testimony is very powerful, right. 
defendant's convicted and the defendant appeals the conviction and so it goes up to a higher court, those, those higher courts uh, in the 1970s and into the early 80s were, were always affirming the convictions. They were always saying, you know, the judge had the discretion to let it in or not. He decided not to, he so there must have been a good not, reason. And, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, um, not, and we're not finding an abuse of discretion. So, uh, so you were blocked out. You were frozen out to some extent. Yes, until 1983, when something different happened in the state of Arizona, when the Arizona Supreme Court, uh, in a case called State v. Chapel, uh, reversed a conviction after the trial judge refused to allow my testimony in, a, in this murder case. So reversed a conviction, basically said that, you know, the defendant had a right to this testimony. Um, a year later, California followed Arizona, reversing a conviction in a murder case for excluding an expert uh, witness on the subject of memory. And then there were a string of, of right. reversals. The dam had broken to some extent. Yes, and it's now, it, it, you know, it doesn't always get in, but it, it gets in a lot more often if, if an attorney wants to introduce this kind of information. So how do you think that happened? I mean, I know you don't know this rigorously scientifically, but was it increased media pressure? Was it some, uh, just a, a general sense of education and awareness in people? How did this 1983 case what do you think were the factors that determined how the situation changed? Just to speculate, I mean, obviously, um, not, not rigorously. Well, I, I don't know. Somebody maybe made a pretty good record. That is, and could compare uh, put a, a, a good record, meaning uh, a, a complete enough record of what the testimony would have looked like, and then some very good lawyer uh, would write uh, an appellate brief that. Um, made a convincing argument. Right. And then, you know, once, and then when California followed Arizona, uh, now you had two states, I mean, so, so uh, it went from there. You know, even back then though, even though there was greater receptivity to the idea, uh, the notion of allowing expert testimony on the science of memory into the courtroom, uh, there still, uh, there still was, uh, you know, resistance, and there still was not as full an appreciation of the problem as we would see years later uh, with um, developments in DNA, because it, it's those DNA cases right. that prove that these hundreds of people are actually innocent. And when those cases have been analyzed and the major cause of those wrongful convictions is faulty eyewitness testimony, then I think the, the legal field began to wake up and, and want to really do something about reforms. Right. So this, we're going back to 1983. We're coming up to present day, but we're going a little yeah. bit slowly, but okay. we're, we're, we're getting there. All right. um, so 1983, the dam breaks at least a little bit. Arizona and California start uh, recognizing expert testimony, uh, or rather uh, testimony from uh, experts in the witness, uh, in, let me try this again, mm -hmm. uh, uh, testimony from experts in memory to be able to demonstrate uh, or, or at least expose people to the potential malleability of memory, uh, people such as yourself. So two questions. Uh, one is, 
how many other people at the time were doing this, other than yourself in the, in the scientific uh, domain, to be working with the, the legal structure uh, to expose people to the potential malleability or the malleability of memory. And, uh, and then I want to talk about what you're doing in terms of your own investigations at the same time that are moving forward. So, but first of all, how many, were you, were you uh, a lone wolf, as it were, in no, this? Or were... Uh, no, um, uh, let's see, before I uh, entered this arena, there was another uh, psychologist named Robert Buckout, who has since passed away, who was trying to get with the with attorneys get expert testimony on this subject admitted he was having greater difficulty there had not yet been a reversal of a conviction that didn't come till 1983 but he was working with attorneys to try to get this testimony introduced um, you know I'm trying to remember exactly you know how but then more people began to, who were doing work, right. who were the scientists, right. were, were starting to get asked to do this um, around that same time. Um, and how were you looked at by your colleagues? Was this, you know, this Elizabeth's on this, uh, she's, she's on this memory bandwagon, she's unrelenting, she keeps going. Was, this, was there a sense of, uh, of encouragement? Was there a sense of discouragement? Were you an outlier in the field? Were you a rebel? Were you um, on the cutting edge? How were you, how were you looking? Well, at? I was publishing my memory articles in the top tier memory journals, you right. know, the Journal of Experimental Psychology and uh, Journal of Verbal Learning and Verbal Behavior. These were some of the top places where you, where scientists who studied memory would be publishing their work, so so I think that the you know the work was being taken seriously. Um, I remember one of my professors at the time, my former professor, saying to me, "You know, it's really I think it's a really great work you're doing. Probably won't get you into the National Academy of Sciences, but it's it's really important work." Well, it's hard to predict these things. No. He wasn't the first person to be wrong about that, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but in any event, he, 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 he meant very well. Yeah. Um, because it, it was kind of applied work, and, right. and still the, the really basic theoretical work, um, that really technical basic work, was probably held in, in more esteem right. than this work that looked kind of applied. But there were, uh, there were these other growing number of psychologists who were interested in eyewitness testimony, starting to do similar kinds of studies. I'm, 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 you know, they might not be looking at leading questions or post-event misinformation. They may be looking at something else like the structure of lineups or the kinds of things that go on at the, at the, at the lineup stage when somebody's trying to make an identification of a perpetrator. Um, and all, these individuals, too, were, were starting to work on cases. So by the time um, uh, a psychologist named Saul Casson did a study of, of what experts agree on, what are the principles that experts agree on, uh, he, was a, he was able to survey something like, you know, 50 or 60 experts. Right. When was this? When did he do this, roughly? Uh, well, he, he did two surveys. Um, the second one was 2000, 
and one, and the earlier one was, you know, there was another earlier one that might have been, you know, 1990 or something like that. And, uh, you know, the second one had something like 60 plus experts. The first one, you know, would have, may, have, may have had close to that. And uh, so there were a number of other people who were involved in this whole enterprise. Well, certainly the science part of it, and many of them involved in court cases. Right. And so you're doing, it seems to me, you're pursuing a two-track approach all the way through this. You're involved increasingly with expert testimony and being involved in doing your bit to make the legal systems more aware of the malleability of memory and the responsibility that they have to take those things seriously because people's lives are at stake in terms of uh, trials, prosecutions, people could be falsely accused of things. And there's also your scientific research on post-event uh, misinformation. There, there, there's a whole wealth of, of other um, research projects that you're doing. So tell me a little bit more about that as that's moving forward some time. Uh, okay, so, so here I've, I've um, pretty much established this phenomenon that's called the misinformation effect. If I, if I give you misinformation about some event that you might have experienced, it can negatively affect your memory. It, it can contaminate, transform, distort, or, or even supplement your memory. And there are a zillion questions you can ask about the misinformation effect, and that's, that's kind of what psychologists do. So, so what are the conditions under which people are particularly susceptible to having their memories be contaminated by suggestion? Uh, who, which kinds of people are more susceptible? Right. Um, when I distort your memory with misinformation, what happened to your original memory that was once there? What the fate of the original memory? That was an issue. So, you know, I did hundreds of studies on the misinformation effect, answering a variety of questions. I did this for a long time uh, until, until the late 80s when I had another kind of, I, Identity crisis moment or something. Just another lunch? Was this your your cousin again? No, uh, no, but it was. It, you know, I, I like I, I I've done so much on this subject and. Was your cousin happy, by the way? I want to get back to this, but was she, your, did your cousin ever come back and say, thank God for just not doing this whole business with the yellow, yellow, yellow birds? No, she, she has very little memory of this conversation. Oh. I, 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 saw her, I saw her recently. Uh, she's living in Chicago, and I was giving a talk in Chicago, and I saw her, and, and, and I told her about this autobiographical story that I tell, and she, does, she doesn't really remember it. But. Oh, that's ironic, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, sorry, yeah. your second your second. No, but the second, uh, so, um, well, I don't know. I wanted, I wanted something new. I wanted something fresh. And, and I remember um, I, had, I was spending New Year's Eve with, with some friends, and we wrote out our New Year's resolutions and put them in a, in a box. And, and I wrote, I want to carve out like 30% of my time and come up with something, something new to, to do. Uh, and I put it in the box. And, and the following year, that same group of friends were together. And we opened up the box. We looked at our resolutions. Did we do it? I didn't do it. Well, we had to write new resolutions uh, for this year, and I wrote same one, 
same one, but this time I really mean it. And I put it in the box. Not the first person to do something yeah, like I, that. <laughs> put it, yeah, put it in the box. And I, I guess that was the year that I testified in the trial of George Franklin. It was my first repressed memory case where Franklin was accused of murdering a little girl 20 years earlier, an eight-year-old girl, based on nothing other than the claim of his grown-up daughter that she had witnessed the murder, repressed her memory, and now the memory was back. And, and this man was prosecuted for this murder. I worked on the case. This idea of repression, what is it? What's the evidence for it? Where did it come from? And I started to look into that. That's, this is just a, a, a big example of how the, the case kind of started to shape my scholarship. Right. And uh, that's how I got into this whole world of repression and psychotherapy, uh, a world that I'd uh, never been in before. And I was reading the writings of psychotherapists about the practices of psychotherapy, about the, the supposed memory recovery techniques in psychotherapy. Uh, and it led to a whole new line of work. When was this? What, what? Uh, well, it, the Franklin case was in 1990. Right. So it, it took me a, f a couple of years to figure out, you know, we're not talking about a little change, like from a stop sign to a yield sign, right. or seeing broken glass at the accident when there wasn't any. If these memories weren't real, these were really big, rich, false memories. We hadn't coined that term yet, but, uh, and so, you know, I needed to find a way to study the, the planting and development of rich, false memories. So what did you do? What did you do to, uh, well, to pursue that? Well, one day uh, I, I, I came up with the idea, uh, why don't we try to plant a memory because because of the fact that we were not going to be able to plant a memory that you witnessed your father committing a murder or you you know or you experienced ten years of sexual abuse. Of course, there's a whole ethical component to this, obviously. Right. The human subjects review committees on every campus will be reviewing proposed research, making decisions about whether to give you permission to do the work, and so it didn't seem very likely that we would be allowed to try to plant these super huge traumatic memories, but maybe we could come up with an analog, something that would have been at least mildly traumatic if it had happened. And that was the, the genesis of our search for, for an idea and ultimately settled on the idea, let's, let's try to make people believe and remember that when they were five or six years old, they were lost in a shopping mall. Uh, that they were frightened, crying, and ultimately rescued by an elderly person and reunited with the family. And we devised a way to do this. So how did you do this? What, how did it actually work? And what, How was the experiment set up? And, and, and presumably you had a control group and you had all the rest of this kind of stuff. How, how did that actually work? Well, if, oh, it, uh, so if you were my subject, I, I, I would have already talked to your, to your mother, for example, because okay. you would have uh, gotten me in touch with her. Right. And I, I'd say, well, Howard, now I, I, I've learned some things that, from your mother that happened to you when you were about five or six years old. And 
I'd, I'd just like to see what you remember about these experiences. And if you don't remember, just say, I, I don't remember that. And then I ask you about three true experiences, things right. that your mother told me really did happen to you. Uh, and then this made up experience constructed with help from your mother about the time when you were six years old. So my mother would be in on this. Oh, yes. Well. Yes, your, well. the mother was in. Because the mother right. has to help construct, give some details and context right. to plant the memory. Where would the family be have been shopping? Right. And if you were too old, uh, so there weren't shopping centers in the town where maybe you would be lost in a Sears or lost in a J.C. Penney's or right. some right. A, a big department store. My but, palms are starting to sweat already, by the way. <laughs> so, well, that, yeah, that's how. So that's so. Um, and I would just encourage you to try to think about, you know, think about these things and see if you could remember anything. Three suggestive interviews. And by the time we were done, we had succeeded in planting a false memory in about a quarter of our subjects, a, a complete or a partial false memory. Wow. So I, I mean, then I was in incredibly excited. Um, when, I, when I saw what people were saying um, and the detail that they would provide that went beyond sure. anything that was in the scenario. So that they'd we embellish would... upon it and, and give other other alleged reports of what happened and, right. and all the rest and, of that. And, and what the what the person looked like who rescued <laughs> them and, and how they, you know things like I heard my name over the loudspeakers and I mean um, and so yeah I do remember you know being you know surprised and. Ex and excited about this this observation, and before we even published this work, uh, the critics came out to attack it. Uh, see, see, the therapists could see where we were going. Sure. And uh, and 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 right away they said, "Look, getting lost is so common. You know, at least show us that you can plant a false memory for something that." Would have been, you know, more unusual, more bizarre than getting lost in a shopping mall, and I and others uh, did that work. So, so a group in uh, in Tennessee planted a false memory using a similar methodology, planting false memory that you uh, nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. Wow. Uh, a, a, a group in Canada planted a false memory that you were attacked. By a vicious animal as a child, hmm. uh, I, in collaboration with an Italian uh, colleague, planted a false memory that you witnessed a person being demonically possessed. Another group planted a false memory that you had an accident at a family wedding as a child. You spilled punch on the parents of the bride. So these very rich false memories were now being planted in in research laboratories around the world. But I bet that didn't assuage the critics. I bet that only made them even more <laughs> tenacious to come after you. Well, yeah. I mean, the next, the next criticism then was, you know, this is a very strong form of suggestion. I've talked to your mother, and your, your mother told me these things happen. I mean, it, we in psychotherapy, we don't say I was there, I saw it happen. We weren't there in the lives of our early lives of our current patients. and. So we then began to, to try other techniques for planning false memory, things that were modeled after what was going on in psychotherapy, like guided imagination. You know, I would see in these court cases, 
um, treat, treating therapists saying things like, you know, you have all the symptoms of somebody who was sexually abused. Did something like this happen? Patient says, no, not, not me. Well, you know, um, why don't you just close your eyes and think about who might have abused you? When might this have happened? How old might you have been? Well, what is this guided imagination exercise doing to people, especially people who it never happened to? Sure. And so we and others did some studies where we showed that guided imagination can lead to false memories, essentially. Are the percentages roughly <clears throat> the same in these things? You mentioned a quarter for the lost in the mall going back. Are, are we talking roughly that amount of people through these various things, demonic possession as well as well, the guided? Do uh, they fall off appreciably at some rate or are they roughly that? that, uh, that well, first percentage? of all, the uh, nearly drowned and had to be rescued. That, that was about a third. Oh, in, really? Oh, in, why yeah. Not? Okay. The um, Canadian study attacked by a vicious animal or had a serious indoor or outdoor accident. They they were succeeding with about half of their subjects. Yeah, it's Canada, though. There are vicious animals everywhere. Well, it's <laughs> Vancouver, yeah. Um, I, so, I, I, you know, you can't put an exact number on it. Sure. One, one study that, uh, that came along after about nine of these studies had been published so, sort of said, well, what's the average? And in, in that particular overview study, they said average 31%. Wow. So it's wow. a sizable wow, minority wow. Of, of, of subjects. Some of these studies are done a little differently, and you can't you, you can't attach a percentage to it because you're using a scale. How, how confident are you that it happened? Right. And they might go from a two to a five sure. on an eight-point scale, but and so you can see that they've moved after the suggestion or after the guided imagination, but uh, and and you could report how many moved or how many moved a lot, um, right. but it's it's. But it's a very significant effect overall. I mean, just, just for a coarse-grained perspective, for me looking at this and saying, wow, there are an awful lot of people who are subjected to this. This is not 1% of the population or half a percent or 2% of the population. This is arguably endemic to, if not the entire human race, a large proportion of, of, of individuals. Mm -hmm. It's a real, this is a really big deal. Right. And then... Then people start to do these studies with young children, and of course their memories are even more malleable. I was going to ask you, so there is a sense that, there, that younger children have more malleable memories than, than, I would imagine so, than older people, but there is empirical evidence to support Right, I, and that's a lot of the work done by you know, other psychologists who specialize in, say, the three to six-year-old age range there. Right. They seem to be especially malleable. Right. Um, so, yes, yeah, so... so uh, so that Franklin case, in, in some sense, really launched a whole new line of, of, of scientific work on rich false memories that might not have been done otherwise. And these, these therapists, so here's my sense of the lay of the land. You're exploring this. You were intrigued by the Franklin case, and you start looking at all sorts of ways of assessing um, this phenomenon or alleged phenomenon of memory suppression uh, you, you investigate false memories. You certainly see there's an enormous sociological legal implication. There's a real possibility that that vast numbers of innocent people could be wrongfully convicted based upon this these false memories uh, through this alleged process of repression and coming to terms with repressed memories. You start doing a wealth of scientific investigation to probe 
um, how malleable memory can be and whether we can implant false memories. You're criticized along the way by, um, I guess, the, the, the psychotherapeutic community who is invoking these particular techniques. And their patients. And their patients. Yes. And, and they're saying, oh yes, but that's lost in a mall, that happens to everyone, can you do this and you do that? And then they say, well, that's maybe a little bit too extreme, can you do something a little more anodyne and you do that? And then they say, oh yes, but you're implanting them using collaborations with their mother, that's not really right, you should use this guiding technique, that's what we use, and then you do that and you show that, it, that, that it's an effect. Um, but my, my sense is they're, they're not ever going to be happy as long as you keep coming back with uh, demonstrations of the fact that well, there's some real justified suspicions for their particular approach. They're, no, they're still out there. They're still out there. And, and they're getting uh, more and more vitriolic against you because you had some, then, then there was this whole Jane Doe case that came later, right? Or am I missing something? In well, I, I be, I, before Jane Doe, there were um, uh, angry people and angry emails and, you know, efforts to get drum up a letter writing campaign to get me fired from my job and wow. drum up a letter writing campaign to the president of my university and the governor of the state where I taught and um, so th there were there were a lot of angry people before before Jane Doe came along. And these are therapists and their patients you're, you're saying because the patients of course are vested in this at this point as well. Yes, yes don't want to be seen as dupes or don't want to be seen as having inadvertently uh, brought people who were innocent to, to you know, put them in prison or criminal justice proceedings against mm -hmm. them or what have you. Um, this must have taken a fairly significant toll on you personally because you're conducting research at the same time and I mean the advantage of conducting research which is socially relevant is that you feel you're doing something important, you can assuage your cousin who doesn't remember the conversation, that you're actually <laughs> engaged in the world and changing the world for the better. But of course the disadvantage is that you uh, have all this garbage thrown at you which, which can be personally I'm sure very demoralizing. I, I, well, I, yeah. and. Uh... You know, I would be invited to give uh, speeches and there would be threats made to the universities or the organization and they'd have to hire guards. Uh, you know, I went to the University of Michigan, for example, they got a threat and uh, I had an armed clothes officer with me uh, at all times that they supplied. Um, wow. So, yeah, it w there were some unpleasant times, kind of scary times, and uh, I remember one time I was, I was giving a, a lecture and there had been some threats on my life and so on, so they, they had some plain clothes guards and, and one of them said, now, if anyone starts to come at you, get the podium between you and him and I will get up there. That's helpful. And, and so, yeah, for if, you, if, if this ever happens to you, then you're, you're, you're supposed to get the podium between you. Okay. And, 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 and it happened, this man was, you know, trying to, well, trying to interrupt the lecture a little, and I wasn't calling on him, and I wasn't whatever. And, and so he got up, and he started to walk up the aisle, and I thought, is it time to get the podium? And, but it turns out he was walking out of the lecture and he so he didn't 
but they got up and followed him out. Um, so That's I mean, pretty, to, to have to be and I'm, concerned and I, about this. Meanwhile, I'm continuing to lecture sure. uh, while all this is going on. It's, Most of the time, you just have to worry about stupid <clears throat> questions. You know, you don't have to worry about right, people right. coming at you. But uh, you do have to worry about keeping it flowing. Yeah. And but keeping it flowing while there's a whole other a story going on in your uh, half of your brain. How about your survival. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a little more difficult. But anyhow, the um, things are, well, then, then of course, the, uh, the, you know, one of the worst things that happened was when a recovered memory lady, you know, complained to my former university, one of your faculties looking into my life, because I was looking into this case history that had been published that I was very suspicious about. Right. It was being fobbed off as the kind of new proof of repressed memory. And, and I, you know, I never thought I'd be able to crack the anonymity because it, when it was written up by the psychiatrist, it was Jane Doe, John Doe, Mom's Town, Dad's Town. But eventually I, with a colleague, um, did crack the anonymity, find the Doe family, uh, and once I found the, the name, the actual name, uh, then I could get into the divorce file and find this evidence that um, really uh, shed a great deal of doubt on the authenticity of this case. Um, but the accusing daughter, who, who had accused her mother of sexual abuse in this case, unusually. Um, she complained to my former university. They, they put me under investigation to see if I'd done anything wrong. I spent two years defending that investigation and uh, ultimately was exonerated. And uh, uh, not too long after that, the Jane Doe sued me for invasion of privacy, defamation, sued my co-author, sued another uh, psychologist whom we thanked in a footnote for her help with the article because once we ultimately sure. published our expose still not naming her but she sued under her own name and so that that resulted in about four and a half years of litigation to wow. resolve that case so that was pretty unpleasant and you know kind of a time-consuming side issue I'll say so looking at the situation now um, do you have a sense that uh, there's a considerably greater awareness in the public consciousness of the malleability of memory, of false memory, of, uh, uh, of, the, of the potential fallacious aspect of this repressed memory therapy that these psychotherapists had been practicing? Is that something that you think has permeated the public consciousness to the extent that it should have? Or there's still a lot of work <coughs> to be done on that point? Uh, I think both. I, I, I think there is a sense that it's permeated the public consciousness. I, I did a, a TED talk last year and... Yeah, know, one and a half million hits or something like that, <laughs> Yeah, one and a half million <laughs> views. I mean, I mean, I don't know how long they watched it, but... That's uh, oh, not that long. Uh, that it's only 16 minutes or something like that. So um, that, that, you know, to me, that's, that's a good sign. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we recently published a paper uh, that shows that there's still a gap in the thinking of researchers in, in the field of memory and uh, who study the mind and study these issues 
and uh, many clinicians who are treating patients. And, 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 and I also am, continue to work on court cases where people are still being accused based on claims of repressed memory. And they're, they're experts who testify on the other side that, you know, that there are 70 studies that show massive repression. It just isn't true. Yeah. So as someone like myself who doesn't have any expertise in this area and doesn't pretend to, the obvious question is, how does this even start? Uh, I, I mean, the idea that there is a, um, there is a, a wealth of clinicians who are out there, psychotherapists, therapists, who have embraced um, uh, an approach, a device, an understanding themselves, that there are these things uh, that are repressed memories that are causing people to act in the way that they do. Our job is to get at the original source of the repressed memories and through a series of, uh, I'm paraphrasing, I don't pretend to be using the words that they would use, but roughly, but in in discussions with these individuals, our job is to get at the source of, uh, 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 of these memories and bring them back to the surface and enable them to deal with it. Now, that's a that's a, an isolated line of approach that, psych, that some psychotherapists have taken, clearly, and are continuing to take. And my understanding is this is based on no scientific evidence whatsoever. So where the heck does this come from? How, how does this even start to happen? Well, uh, you know, we need a, we need a sociologist for, for, oh. for, the, for this question. But I'll, as a, as a non-sociologist, I'll sort of say what I can say but again my expertise is really in memory and sure so I'm stepping outside a sure. little and just uh, speculating a little bit but if we go back in time let's say to the 1970s there there was a time when the stories of, of women and, and children primarily about abuse were not particularly being believed and and acted upon and there were um, activists at the time who were trying to change that situation and focus attention on the reality of abuse and get people to take it seriously and you know both child abuse and also incest and right and there was a lot that was swept under the rug right so so a, a light now is being shined on this problem uh, of, of real abuse and, and there are plenty of real abuse cases where there's nothing suspicious about them. Um, when people were writing about this, they weren't talking about repression. Um, they would, you know, they'd be talking maybe about shame and not wanting to talk about something and trying to bring it out into the open and have the world realize it was a real problem. But people weren't talking about repressed memories. And then, for some reason, this huge supply of genuine cases for people to worry about and be sympathetic towards and, and, and try to fix, it's as if it wasn't enough. And you began to see people say, well, if you don't have memories of abuse, it doesn't mean you weren't abused. And to bring this idea of repression into our consciousness and uh, so this supposedly what you know was going on with these uh, people who would ultimately develop multiple personality disorder mm. they supposedly had repressed memories that were being carried by the other personality or whatever 
Um, <clears throat> therapists who were who were latching onto this idea uh, of massive repression were, along with their patients, were were going to the state legislatures uh, and convincing politicians that repression was real, so that they could get changes in, in legisl uh, legislation that would toll the statute of limitations if you claimed you repressed your memory. I mean, there were, there were people who were in this therapy who would come up with these memories. Uh, you know, now I remember daddy did, you know, rape me between mm -hmm. the ages of, you know, five and 16, and I repressed it. But if they wanted to file a civil lawsuit, it was too late, because they were 50, you know, and the statute of limitations had run. Then, with all this politicking at, at, at the state legislatures, state after state began to enact legislation that would toll the statute that would say, you know, people should have three years from the time they remember the abuse to mm -hmm. file their lawsuit. So they reinterpreted the statute of limitations. Uh, uh, yeah, just for this purpose. And so the 50-year-old now, if she, if she re claims she recovered her memory, you know, at the age of 49, then she could file her lawsuit. And so then we began to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits, people suing their parents, their former neighbors, their other relatives, their mm. former doctors, teachers, dentists, everybody, mm. for abuse that they supposedly repressed. And so now, when you, have, when you add all these repressed cases to the continuous memory you know, cases, now you have an even bigger problem. And the bigger the problem, you know, the more money I guess you can get from the government to try to fix the problem. Sure. More litigation, more money goes to lawyers. More. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so I, you know, I, I have sometimes wondered whether we wouldn't be better off if we went back to 1988 and kept the statute of limitations hmm. uh, in place that we had, we had back then. I had no idea that that, that had been changed. But uh, again, there, there's something that structurally that's that's bothering me which is to say that if if some percentage some non-trivial percentage of the psychotherapy community if somebody yes. can can have a degree and hang it on the wall and open their shop and say i am clinically trained i am trained i'm a specialist um, uh, i've gone through some accreditation process and i can help you using modern psychotherapeutic techniques uh, I, as a, as a layperson, would like to have the assurance that those techniques and those qualifications are based on some objective measure of science, that they are, it may, it may be foul science, it's fallible, I realize I'm not looking for infallibility, but I would like to have a sense that, okay, if you have technique A, B, C, and D, then there's some scientific justification for it somewhere. Just as if when I go into my doctor's office, if I have a problem with my foot, I don't want them to start bringing out leeches or start um, going through various incantations to try to help <laughs> the problem with my foot. My expectation is this is a, this is a, a fully qualified professional, and this professional is, uh, is going to use the tools of science as we best understand them today to be able to help my foot. While my mind and my, my whole being is, I mean, I have nothing against my foot, but it is, is more significant to me than, than my foot. So what sort of objective oversight do we have of these people who are, who are doing what they're doing? Because it's not just false memories. It could be a whole wealth of different things that they're doing that have nothing to do with their current understanding of, of science. Well, I, you know, I can't speak about the whole field of psychotherapy, but I am aware that there are clinical 
trials that have looked at various treatment programs for uh, mental health issues. Um, that, and, and, and so the, certain treatment methods have, in some sense, been certified, or at least um, there, is, there is scientific evidence that, um, that the patients are helped by these treatments relative to some non-treated controls. Mm. When it comes to um, <clears throat> this so-called repressed memory treatment, although they will not admit to that, that label, but the digging out of these recalcitrant trauma memories and making you aware of them and these supposedly repressed memories, there is no cl clinical trial There's that, right. that proves that these uh, practices are helping the patients. Right, let alone whether or not they're objectively true and that the collateral damage of all sorts of people being wrongfully convicted or, or being accused of, of all these horrible acts. Right, exactly. And, and uh, well, this is reminding me also of the fact that uh, there's another group of people that we haven't talked about, but there who have been been through this therapy that led them to have what they thought were repressed memories. Maybe they sued their parents. The families got estranged, split apart. Maybe they even got their, uh, uh, you know, alleged abuser prosecuted. And at some point, they start to realize their memories are false. It must be that's, terribly traumatic. Yeah, and that's a fascinating uh, issue for for a memory scientist. How do you how do you start to realize your memories are false? In some of these cases, their insurance ran out, and so they no longer. We're seeing the psychotherapist hmm. that had been participating in the development of these memories. In any event, many of those retractors have, have sued their former therapists for planting false memories, malpractice lawsuits, and have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts. So that woke up the mental health profession. Uh, that, that woke them up when when these multi-million dollar verdicts were starting to come in. This was, you know, headline news in, in the psychiatric newspaper. I'm looking at how you scale these changes that you've made. You, you've been uh, an expert witness on many trials now. How, how many, roughly? Um, Lots, I know. But. Well, I'm... Uh, I mean, close to 300 trials wow, since the that, 70s, okay. since the first one that I testified in in the mid-70s. So again, as an outsider, I'm thinking, here's Elizabeth going in time after time after time after time, saying, be careful, <laughs> we, we, we have to take this with an enormous grain of salt, maybe a truckload of salt. Here's the data that shows the malleability of memory. Here, here's the amount of confidence or the lack of confidence we, uh, we might have in these sorts of allegations. Um, and for you to have to do that, uh, it, it's, I'm thinking about the difficulties in scaling this for the system, because you can't go everywhere, you can't be the, the expert witness. Presumably there's some sense uh, that the law is evolving and there's jurisprudence and people are looking back to this case and they're invoking that case. But would it, going forwards 10 years, would we, how can we make sure that this awareness reaches as wide an audience in the legal world as possible. Do you know, maybe that's not a terribly well-formulated question, but my, my idea is that rather than having you constantly go back, um, or your peers and, and some individuals, you'd like to see some broader-based awareness within the legal structure so that once people start, start invoking 
uh, repressed memories or false memories is a key aspect of their case, little alarm bells start going off and you don't necessarily need to constantly be bringing in expert testimony. Right, I, right, because it's, a, it's an expensive way to educate sure. people, just 12 people at a time. Right. I, it, it'd be nice if, if we could, you know, just, uh, just have a more educated uh, group to begin with. But, well, we might take a lesson from something that recently happened in the state of New Jersey. We'll have to see how this works out. But the state of New Jersey, in a, in a case called Henderson, um, the New Jersey Supreme Court basically established new guidelines for dealing with eyewitness issues in criminal cases in the state of New Jersey. So if you're a defendant in, in a criminal case in New Jersey and it's an eyewitness case, somebody's memory is the, the key evidence against you, if you can make any showing that there's something a little suggestive or, or fishy, the judge is required to have a hearing hmm. and air all of the issues, all of the factors uh, surrounding this eyewitness memory. And at the end of that hearing, if the judge decides to still allow the eyewitness testimony, the judge has to give a set of jury instructions that have been um, written. It looks like they could have been written by you know memory scientists. They talk about the nature of memory and the malleable nature of memory and the factors that affect memory and how they affect memory. And the judge has to read these jury instructions. So here is a reform, a, a pretty bold reform that's go gone on in, in one state. Right. And it remains to be seen how effective it is. Somebody's going to have to do a study about the impact of this uh, reform. I'm sure we'll see that soon. Um, but that's one idea for how you can do something to educate people, um, you know, without having to do it, you know, through expert testimony and the the expensive nature, just in terms of time and. and right. When when did they invoke that? When did they start? This, within the last two years. Really, and they're the only ones who have done so so far. Well, something like that. Uh, that they're the major place, uh, you know. And there is a case in Oregon that where something a little similar uh, looks like it's, but but it's not, it's not quite as good as New Jersey. Hmm. And, do, and and do you know um, the precursor to that? What who who are the people motivating that? That seems like it's very well organized and well structured and and some sort of algorithm that can be set up dependent on the, the dependency of memory for eyewitness testimony exactly as you've said. Somebody's obviously gave a lot of, someone gave a lot of thought to this well, and, and structured it in a particular way. How did that happen? Do you have a sense of it? <clears throat> I, well, the Henderson was convicted based on this questionable eyewitness testimony. Right. Um, there, there was also a companion case called Chen that people don't really talk about very much, but there was a companion case where a defendant named Chen was also convicted, and those two cases then there were they were appealed at the at the same time and considered by the uh, New Jersey Supreme Court, and a lot of people uh, wrote briefs and you know there, there, there was a lot of written material uh, <clears throat> and involvement of concerned organizations like the Innocence Project in New York uh, to get some of this information out and up to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and, and that undoubtedly helped to 
influence the outcome. Right. I want to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the other aspects of the science and memory and how your work fits into that. So you've spent uh, a very productive research career describing in great detail um, and in all sorts of different circumstances how the mind may be malleable uh, to, uh, as far as memories go, how it's susceptible to false memories, how memories are not what we naively think that they are. Uh, back in your book that was written, uh, that first came out some 20 years ago, you, you have this analogy of memory as a as adding milk to a bowl of water as opposed to um, having data stored on a hard drive, which is what most people think. They can take it, they can retrieve it at any time. Well, it's very difficult to retrieve teaspoons of milk that are added to a bowl of clear water because it all gets mixed up. Um, later on, you talk about memory because you're adapting your message to the times, like a Wikipedia entry where different people are, are adding different things to it, and it's very difficult to distill what the original core content was after the fact. Um, so th these are based upon your empirical studies, your work, your research, uh, collaborations on, uh, in terms of expert testimony, your experiences in the, in the, in the real world, as it were. Um, and there are also people who are memory scientists who are doing fMRI studies, who are, uh, who are studying exactly how memory works. Do you have close collaborations sometimes with people who are taking a lot of the empirical studies that you are finding and looking for more uh, abstract theoretical uh, models in terms of what's actually going on in the brain? Do you do much of that? Do you, do you interact a lot with your colleagues who are on the more uh, uh, let's say, mechanistic model uh, medical diagnostic side of things? Well, uh, there are, are a group of people who are doing, uh, say, neuroimaging studies, trying to look at whether you can distinguish true memories from false memories. I, I collaborated with one, one group on, on one study, but I don't, I don't do that kind of work. I don't even right. know how to do that, that, uh, that kind of work. And, you know, the, the bottom line observation is the incredible similarity between the neural activity when you are recounting a true versus a false uh, memory. So, you know, I would say that, uh, yeah, I do speak with these other scientists. This work the, taken together, we are a long, long way away from being able to do what maybe the legal system would like, which is to take a single memory and reliably classify it according sure. to true or, or false. Uh, they seem to be having a little bit more luck uh, using neuroimaging to distinguish uh, truth from a deliberate lie. Right. But these false memories are not deliberate lies. They're right. things that people really believe in. And, and they seem to involve similar brain structures and activity. But they're clearly higher level, very, very complex interactions with all sorts of different parts of the brain. I mean, this is, it's, maybe it's one of the last things we'll be able to, <laughs> to figure mm -hmm. out rather than the first things, it seems to me. I don't know your thoughts on it. I mean, it's a long, long way away from processing, getting a clear sense of how we recognize faces, for example, and that's not so easy either. But uh, so this is a much higher level uh, uh, this is a much higher level phenomenon, it seems to me, anyway. What about the, you talk about generally raising awareness of, of these sorts of things. Um, and you talk about, uh, you, you mentioned New Jersey from a legal perspective as, as, a, as a state which seems to be setting policies in place. 
Is there more that we can do or should be doing in terms of general education for people, people grade school students across, across the land or around the world who might, uh, who, who might have um, who might have a lack of awareness of just how fragile and, and unreliable sometimes memories can be and just how influential they can be. Is this something that we should be promulgating more? You've done it yourself with your research, but should this be part of an educational curriculum at some point, do you think? Well, one of the, one of the places where you do see this is in um, high school psychology courses, because there are now textbooks that are um, being you know, written and used in uh, high school psychology courses. So I think some of these ideas are filtering into the minds of high school students. It hadn't occurred to me that maybe we want to try to do this even earlier hmm. and um, get some of these ideas on Sesame Street. Well, why not? I mean, mm -hmm. there's nothing like Big Bird if you want to. I presume <laughs> Big Bird is still there. I know. Yeah, I, I, know, I don't watch while. it either, but okay. <laughs> And what about internationally? Is there a difference between um, the social policies, the legal policies, the, the frameworks that are in place um, in the United States as opposed to other countries around the world? Are, are you knowledgeable enough to be able to make some sort of judgments and say, well, in Sweden, which seems to be the place that everything is done better, in Sweden, say, uh, they have some understanding of this, or in, uh, in South Africa, they, they, they have their act together here. Is there anywhere that you can say uh, would be a, a poster boy or poster girl of, of awareness in this regard? Uh, no, from, from where I sit, well, let's say, on, again, the, these eyewitness, uh, the eyewitness world and the repressed memory or memory wars, um, what they have in common is they're about memory and the workings of the mind and, uh, and maybe about the malleable nature of memory. Uh, but, but, but they're kind of separate sorts of cases. Um, and we're always going to be having eyewitness cases. They're, they're not going away. Uh, these repressed memory cases, which created, I think, a, an even bigger problem. It's an issue. It, it, it's a phenomenon, I think, that started in North America. And then we exported it. Hmm. Uh, North American mental health professionals would be invited to speak in, in Western Europe and, or in Scandinavia or in other parts of the world, and that's how these ideas spread. Um, so a lot of the things that are happening in other countries are kind of things that maybe we went through in the United States five years ago or, or something. That, right. So they're, they're a little later to be waking up to the problems. In the case of Sweden, uh, there is an amazing case um, that is in the news, in the news in Sweden today. And it's a case involving a man named Thomas Quick uh, who confessed to a whole bunch of different murders um, through mental health professional and police interventions convincing him that he had repressed his memory for these murders. He ultimately would confess to them. He was convicted of them. And it's now come to light that he appears to be completely innocent. So there are now uh, professional uh, organizations and meetings being held in Sweden. I'm going to be going uh, later this year uh, to try to talk about what just happened in Sweden. Right. So perhaps there's even more work to be done outside of the United States, given what you just said, given that they, 
as it were, came to the party a little bit later, uh, and so they they have they have had uh, less time to have to have been fully aware of of many of the horrific negative ramifications associated with these sorts of, of therapies. Right. So you have to, it seems, get out and travel more, I guess that's well, the conclusion. Well, I, I do have a few uh, international trips in my future to try to talk about this in, in uh, some other countries. Great. I have, I have one more question for you uh, before we wrap it up, and that is, has all of this work on memory over the years, has it made you question your own memory when you think about um, I, I realize not in terms of repressed memory or anything like that, but, but knowing the malleability of memory and knowing how fragile a thing it can be, do you ever personally wonder yourself about whether recollections that you've had or may not actually be objectively true? Well, I, I, I definitely wonder, um, but um, one of the th I think one of the best things this has done for me is to make me more tolerant of the, the mistakes that um, friends or family members or other people around me make. And when I hear what I, I think is a mistake, I, I, you know, I don't jump to the conclusion they're lying. I, this just could be a memory distortion. Um, and of course my work also, when, when something appears in the news and there's somebody accusing somebody else, I, I'm aware of the fact that the first reaction a lot of other people have is, oh, you know, that poor victim, what a vicious perpetrator. And you know, my first reaction is, hmm, I wonder if, I wonder if that memory is real. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Is there something that no, we haven't touched on? No, I think that, or? but it's amazing. You're, I mean, I have had many interviews, but you're like excellent, and you didn't have. They often have notes and all their questions yeah, written yeah. out, and and. Oh, well, you do cool work. Thank <laughs> you very much. It's a pleasure oh, talking yeah. to you. Thank yeah, you, you very too. much, Elizabeth. You too. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Law, along with separate discussions with Nita Farahani, Emily Hoffner Burton, Julian Roberts, and Alan Sachs. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.